This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. He was involved in a criminal world with his friends and associates. It quickly escalated into these homicides. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Incompetence or corruption, especially in D.C., there was a lot of activity going on. The case was forgotten. Why open up this can of worms? There were things that were just best left buried. Welcome back to Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders. I'm your host, Karen Smith. This is episode 15. This podcast contains graphic language and is not suitable for children. Previously on the Car Barn Murders. In 1954, Captain Theodore Volton wrote a follow-up report after a male confidential informant came forward with new information on the Car Barn murder case. This same informant had come forward in 1940, along with a female informant with information that the robbery and murders were planned in a beauty salon operated by Jonas Willard Green, a former sergeant from the Washington, D.C. police force. The female informant said that Jonas Willard Green, William Clark, a man named White, a woman named Emmanuel, and a man named Duffy all attended this meeting. Jonas Willard Green ran a large number of rooming houses around the district and amassed millions of dollars in profits without ever being questioned or arrested for any violations of the law, even though the vast majority of his tenants were young single women. It's my belief that the vast majority of his rooming houses were dens of prostitution and hubs for racketeers. I found no definitive proof, such as police raids listed in the news, but the circumstantial evidence and Common sense certainly points the needle in that direction based upon the exponential growth of the Greens' wealth in a very short period of time. A fugitive from justice on a rape charge had taken refuge in one of Greens' rooms, and Green had some type of alliance with Orville Staples, another ex-DC police officer who became the boss in the slot machine and bootlegging rackets. Jonas Willard Green's high-end clothing business Mill Green Incorporated burned to the ground under suspicious circumstances right before a final bankruptcy hearing, nearly killing two tenants of a third-floor apartment. Green filed an insurance claim for $10,000 for the loss of the contents that were supposed to have been sold at a bankruptcy sale months before. Jonas Willard Green quit the police department under a dark cloud after three district inspectors 
found six violations in just one week of following his every move. Numerous letters to the D.C. commissioners from senators and congressmen failed to get Green off the hook. It made me wonder what Green got away with before someone in the department decided to get first-hand dirt on him. At the end of episode 14, I mentioned that I also discovered that Jonas Willard Green was related to District Commission President Melvin Hazen, one of the most influential elites in the district. I found out that Green and Hazen were cousins. Talk about one hand washing the other. In 1933, Hazen was appointed to his position by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, with whom Hazen was a social friend. Hazen was also friends with members of the Senate and Congress, the District Attorney's Office, and with D.C. Police Superintendent Ernest Brown. Lord Mayor of Washington Melvin Hazen had the power to quash criminal charges for his friends with a simple phone call. In my eyes, Jonas Willard Green skirted the law because he was politically, socially, and economically connected to the right person, his own cousin, who took payoffs to ignore any violations. The police department allowed his rooming house prostitution business to operate, turned a blind eye to Green's underworld deals, and pocketed hush money. Taking payoffs to ignore it was much easier than going after a big fish like Jonas Willard Green, who had connections that led directly to the Capitol building and the White House through his cousin, Melvin Hazen. In my opinion, Jonas Willard Green was hands-off, untouchable, Teflon. Green was a man of great wealth and influence, with a family connection to the most influential man in the city. As long as those at the top of the political food chain worked together, there was no threat or worry about getting caught by the police who were being paid handsomely to look the other way. On the surface, the scheme was simple and clear-cut, but the public was being sold a bill of goods since the real racket kings like Jonas Willard Green were operating wide open and with the tacit permission of those tasked with eliminating them. Simply put, money talks. Jonas Willard Green and his wife, Gertrude, opened a beauty parlor, Green's Company Incorporated, in 1929 in the tobacco store that had been owned by Gertrude's father before he died. Green's Company Incorporated was in the same location as the Shingle Shop, a beauty parlor half-owned by James Weir, and the Modern School of Beauty, owned by Weir's sister, Neva Berardinelli. This single location of all three businesses was the connective tissue between Jonas Willard Green, James Weir, and William Clark, my primary suspect for the robbery and murders of James Mitchell and Emery Smith. The fact that all three of these beauty salons were one and the same adds a lot of weight to the statement by the female confidential informant who said that the crime was planned in a beauty salon operated by Jonas Willard Green and that William Clark was at that meeting. The female informant was privy to this information, who was present and where it occurred, so she must have either been a direct witness to this meeting or had credible information of her own to offer to Captain Bolton. Continuing to unfold the 1954 addendum report, Captain Bolton came out of retirement and did some digging of his own. He found out that the woman who went by the name Emmanuel who was present during the planning meeting at Green's Beauty Salon, was actually named Gertrude. Could she have been Jonas Willard Green's ex-wife, Gertrude Pond, or Green's daughter, Gertrude? She also became a beautician, and an award-winning one at that. That sure seemed coincidental to me. Volton also discovered information about Duffy, the mechanic who operated a garage for Jonas Willard Green in the area of 7th and N Streets Northwest. Duffy was also at the meeting and he disappeared in 1936 and was never heard from again. If Duffy helped to hide the car used in the murders and wasn't trusted to keep things quiet, was he expendable? Was Duffy another despicable witness elimination? The female informant in Volton searched that area in 1940 but the garage and car were never located. Also, recall the name John Swales, William Clark's associate? 
Swales was a taxi driver and mechanic, and he lived at 4th and N Streets Northwest, just three blocks from that garage. William Clark visited John Swales at a gas station on the night he took Mary Branch out to kill her. That sounded like additional premeditated planning between Clark and Swales. Could John Swales actually have been Duffy, the mechanic who worked for Jonas Willard Green and was never heard from after 1936? My sixth sense says yes, but unfortunately, I don't know for sure, and I have no way to find out. Before I go forward, I need to say this. We stand on the shoulders of giants when we work cold cases like this one. Without the incredible gumshoe detective work of Theodore Volton, Leroy Rogers, James McAuliffe, Stuart Deal, and the follow-ups by Jack Toomey and the reports and information that have been preserved for over 87 years, I would never have been able to complete my investigation. I have to give credit where it's due. To all of them, I say thank you for your dedication and work to try to find the answers. You handed the ball off and I ran with it. This investigation was not only for my family and James Mitchell's family, it was for all of them as well. Captain Volton's 1954 report rounded out the list of players in this horrible story. I had to finish putting all of the pieces together to present a case, not only to you, but to the people with the power to make a ruling on the Carbarn case and whether or not my investigation is worthy of ruling it closed for good. Just like my years on the street, if it's not documented, it didn't happen. It's all in the articulation, and believe me, this is the longest police report I've ever written. In order for a case to go forward, the information must be accurate, factual, objective, and verifiable. Obviously, there won't be any arrests or indictments, since everyone involved is presumed dead, given their age at the time of the crime. But my end game is to get the Carbarn case officially solved and closed. You play the most important role. You're the public jury. After you've listened to all of the evidence and information, I'm going to leave it in your hands to decide whether or not I've made my case and either take that information to the Montgomery County State Attorney's Office for a final ruling or be satisfied that although I gave it my best shot, there just wasn't enough in the public's eye to make a verdict. That's a scary prospect, but it's the only fair and balanced way to do this. This is a largely circumstantial case, and after 87 years, that's not surprising. There is no DNA available, no murder weapon to do ballistics comparisons. The evidence from the scene at the Rock Creek Bridge was lost or destroyed decades ago. The gun and bloody clothing, supposedly in the possession of Captain Richard McCarty, was never reported or followed up. The car was never found. The reports detail nothing about the clothing of victims James Mitchell and Emery Smith, and the chain of custody for the bullets and casings is unclear, since they were sent via the post office to various other departments for comparison to their cases with similar circumstances. It's my understanding that there is one bullet that's remained in a sealed envelope from Pumphrey's funeral home, and that evidence is still in the possession of the Montgomery County Police. Without a gun for comparison, it's useless. Without a chain of custody for the gun, if it's ever located, the murder weapon would be useless. Bottom line, this isn't a forensic case. In order for you, the public jury, to make a fair ruling, there are a couple of little housekeeping items to go through, starting with an explanation of the types of evidence, direct and circumstantial. Either of them can be used to prove any fact. There's no distinction between the weight that you can give to either direct or circumstantial evidence. It is for you, the jury, to decide how much weight to give any piece of evidence. Now what's the difference? Direct evidence establishes a fact. Eyewitness testimony and suspect confessions are examples of direct evidence. And as we all know, eyewitness testimony can be flawed and people can give false confessions. So even though direct evidence can provide a factual part of a case, the weight of that direct evidence still hinges on the totality of circumstances. And that is where circumstantial evidence comes in. Circumstantial evidence is what many cases are based on. This includes forensic science like DNA and fingerprints. It's not absolute proof of a fact in and of itself, but when circumstantial evidence from multiple sources all lead to the same conclusion, 
then it's considered to be proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Does that circumstantial evidence lead to other evidence that tells a logical story? Now hold on, there's a catch. It's only proof of guilt if there's no alternative explanation of innocence that makes as much sense or more sense than the establishment of guilt through that same evidence. In short, is there a logical conclusion through the circumstantial evidence that establishes the facts of the case along with any intent by the suspect? In the end, the jury has to weigh not only the facts presented in the way of direct evidence, but the logical conclusions via circumstantial evidence. It's a heavy burden sometimes when a case hinges on one eyewitness or one small forensic clue. Henry David Thoreau once said, some circumstantial evidence is very strong as when you find a trout in the milk. He meant that if you find a trout in your milk bucket, it sure didn't swim there on its own. In my opinion, if the Carborn case is that milk bucket, there's an entire aquarium swimming around in it. If I were to present the evidence on this case today to one of the prosecutors I worked with over many years and many investigations, I believe that not only would they bring forward a criminal indictment, they'd also receive a resounding guilty verdict in court once they argued the facts to an unbiased jury. Now, that's just my opinion, and opinions are like, well, you know, everybody has one. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. I had to take all of this into consideration when I started to make my conclusions on this case. I knew that there would be very little, if any, direct evidence, and that it would be largely circumstantial. But after being a witness in so many trials, as a detective, and watching how the prosecution and the defense put their cases together, I had a pretty good idea of how to present my findings to you in an unbiased way. Believe me, I would love nothing more than to stamp the words, case solved on this file, but that's not how it works. I have to rely on an objective jury. That's you. So, welcome to the Car Barn Murders podcast courtroom. Switch your investigator thinking cap 
over to your impartial juror hat and let's get started. I'll begin with a quick review and then I'm going to present the case against my primary suspect, William Clark. On January 21, 1935, two victims were brutally murdered during a robbery of the Chevy Chase Lake ticket office of the Capital Transit Company. James Mitchell and Emery Smith had both been shot multiple times in the head with the same gun, a Colt 1903 32 caliber semi-automatic. James Mitchell's body was left on the floor of the locked money cage, and Emery Smith's body was found floating in Rock Creek, just a mile north of the office. Evidence suggested that Smith had been shot in a car at close range before being dragged into the water by two suspects. Emery Smith had punched his time clock card at 4.23 a.m., the last verifiable action of either victim. Witness Parker Hanna arrived for work at about 5.10 in the morning and found the front door of the ticket office unlocked. When he entered, he found James Mitchell's body in the locked money cage. Parker Hanna, Robert Abersold, and Linwood Jones went into the trainman's room and found Francis Gregory allegedly asleep on a bench next to the wall adjacent to the money cage where Mitchell was shot and killed. All of the other doors inside of the ticket office were reported to be unlocked. Parker Hanna reported that the north side window was unlocked, with muddy shoe prints left on the windowsill, the screen lying on the ground outside, and one set of shoe prints in the snow outside of that window. Ear witness Charles Smallwood heard gunshots and shouting on the street from the basement of the T.W. Perry Coal Company at around 4.35 a.m. Eyewitness Ernest Carter was waiting on the first trolley at Dan's Hot Dog Stand at around 4.30 when he heard gunshots and shouting and saw two white men run out of the ticket office and get into a green Buick driven by a third man. He reported that the car was initially facing southbound, did a U-turn on Connecticut Avenue, and went north toward the Rock Creek Bridge. Shoe prints in the snow exited the car barn and stopped abruptly at Connecticut Avenue. Other shoe prints led south from an area of empty lots to the north of the ticket office and back to tire tracks of a vehicle that circled and waited before turning southbound on Connecticut Avenue. Hand impressions in the snow on a rock between the office and the empty lots showed that someone stopped and sat down. No fingerprints were found on any evidence, and no blood was found outside of the ticket office. Four shell casings, one 32 caliber bullet, and two projectiles were collected at the scene, one from behind an inkwell and one from the plaster above the desk. Another projectile went through the desk and remained lodged in the wall that separated the office from the trainman's room. There were no reports of any shell casings found at the bridge over Rock Creek or anywhere outside of the ticket office or car barn. On the afternoon of Monday, January 21st, the day of the murders, William Clark went to police headquarters and told the detectives that he'd heard street talk about his possible involvement and inserted himself into the investigation. He was held in jail for three days. Clark's girlfriend, Mary Branch, and his friend, James Weir, were also arrested and brought in for questioning. William Clark worked for Capital Transit at the Chevy Chase Lake ticket office for one month in September of 1934. On October 14, 1934, he was arrested along with James Weir for committing an armed robbery. Around Christmas of 1934, William Clark sold his Capital Transit Company uniform to Francis Gregory, the man allegedly sleeping in the trainman's room on the morning of the murders. On Saturday, January 19, 1935, just two days before the murders, William Clark went to the Chevy Chase Lake ticket office two times under the guise of retrieving a change carrier. On Sunday night, January 20th, Clark had a meeting with a police officer at the apartment of his girlfriend, Mary Branch, at 1415 Girard Street. Clark said that he, James Weir, and Mary Branch all went to the Gaiety Theater and arrived back home around 11.30 p.m. He said that he didn't leave Mary's apartment until 1.15 Monday afternoon, at which point he went down to police headquarters. William Clark admitted to sleeping in the bedroom while Mary Branch slept on the couch. James Weir went home around 11.15 p.m. This was verified by his friend, Joseph Goddard. William Clark said that he had an appointment with Mr. Stevens, the superintendent of transportation, for Monday, January 21st, in order to get his job back. 
Mr. Stevens referred Clark to Mr. Kelly, the company's attorney. Clark did not keep either appointment, opting instead to go to the police station. A green Buick was stolen from the area of 15th and Irving Street at around 10 o'clock p.m. on Sunday night, January 20th. This car was never recovered, and it was located within walking distance from William Clark's apartment on Gerard Street, just two blocks away. Eyewitness Ernest Carter was certain that the car he saw outside of the ticket office at the time of the robbery and murders was a green Buick. Hearsay information from witness K.W. Gettings via his roommate alleged that Gettings saw William Clark on the morning of the murders in a Pontiac sedan parked across the street from the 14th and East Capitol Street ticket office when a milk truck shined its headlights across the driver of the car whom Gettings identified as William Clark. During his police interview, William Clark admitted to knowing James Mitchell. I discovered that Mitchell aided the police on a previous arrest of Clark for robbery. Clark denied knowing my great-uncle Emery Smith, however, he described Smith very accurately during his interview with detectives, and he worked at the same location and during the same hours as Emery Smith for a month in the fall of 1934. William Clark's movements, meetings, times of departure, return, and subsequent actions did not coincide at all with the information from his girlfriend, Mary Branch. Clark failed to mention any meeting with a police officer on Sunday night, a taxi ride to the Gaiety Theater. He also failed to mention his friendship with Francis Gregory until the detectives prompted a response, at which time he admitted to knowing Gregory. William Clark also admitted that he frequented the horse track. William Clark was in serious debt. He owed witness Frank Schuerman $165, to whom he had already written several bad checks. Clark gave Schuerman a vehicle as collateral. Clark told Schuerman that $300 was owed on the banknote, but in actuality, there was $650 owed on the car from a previous loan that Clark had taken out on it. The week before the murders, Clark, his cousin Benny Johnson, and two other men went to Schuerman's home in Baltimore at 1.30 in the morning and tried to strong-arm the car back. Clark told Schuerman that he desperately needed it. Clark left without the car, and Mr. Schuerman kept it. Mary Branch said that Clark had been in trouble for failing to pay alimony to his wife, Viola, and in support of their three children. Mary also stated that she had paid money on the car that Clark took to Schuerman's. She helped him financially, gave him food and a place to live. In May of 1935, just five months after the murders of James Mitchell and Emery Smith, William Clark drove Mary Branch into rural Ilchester, Maryland in the middle of the night. He beat her senseless with a blackjack and then threw her over a 35-foot bridge into the Patapsco River, believing he'd left her for dead. Later that morning, Clark got word from his cousin, Benny Johnson, through a taxi driver that Mary survived the beating and fall into the water and was at the hospital. William Clark panicked and ran out of his apartment, followed closely by a woman. Clark represented himself in court on the attempted murder charge and was found guilty. In June of 1935, he received an eight-year prison sentence at the Maryland State Penitentiary. Before the attempt on her life, Mary Branch had been talking to Francis Gregory and told Gregory that Clark would sit around and plan holdups. She also told Gregory that she heard Clark was seeing another woman, and if she found that to be true, she would tell everything she knew to the police. A few days later, Clark tried to kill her. Mary told a newspaper reporter that the reason for the attempted murder was because she knew too much. William Clark purchased furniture and put $500 down on a house in Chevy Chase with his other girlfriend, Edith Small, the woman referenced by Mary Branch as the catalyst for her discussion with Francis Gregory. Mary Branch wrote to William Clark in prison regarding surreptitious letters that she intercepted sent from Edith Small to George McNeil. The letters referenced Clark and Edith's communications in which Edith wrote that, quote, she hoped you would soon get your release so she and you could carry out your plans. During Francis Gregory's interview, he ended it by saying he believed William Clark was in on the car barn job. During William Clark's interview, the detectives surmised that Clark could have been the finger man for the murders. D.C. Police Captain Richard McCarty 
believed that Clark could have used a bottle of anesthesia found at the apartment to render Mary Branch unconscious before committing the crime. A prostitute named Marjorie had information that Clark pulled the car barn job, which she disclosed to Richmond Police Sergeant Anthony during a tryst. Captain Volton's two confidential informants also named William Clark as the perpetrator. William Clark pawned a watch taken during the robbery of an employee of the Hot Shops restaurant chain to a man named John Swales. Clark visited Swales at a gas station at 4th and N Street Northwest on the night he took Mary Branch out to kill her. John Swales also visited Clark several times when he worked at the Chevy Chase Lake office. John Swales was a taxi driver and a mechanic. From his prison cell, Clark wrote to several people, including Neva Berardinelli, James Weir's sister. James Weir had a half-interest in the shingle shop beauty parlor. Neva Berardinelli owned the Modern School of Beauty. Both shared a location with Green's Company Incorporated, a beauty parlor owned by ex-DC Police Sergeant Jonas Willard Green. In 1938, Captain Richard McCarty informed Captain Volton that he completed an independent investigation on William Clark in 1935 and about the anesthesia bottle that was never reported. Captain McCarty was also allegedly in possession of a gun and bloody clothing that belonged to William Clark, but the disposition of those items remains unknown. Clark was also alleged to have received three or four guns from a police officer, but this was also unsubstantiated. In 1935, a reference was made to Shorty at the garage at 7th and N Street Northwest, who could tell more about Clark than anyone. Another man named Duffy operated a garage at 7th and N Street Northwest and was a mechanic for Jonas Willard Green. In 1940, Detective Volton and a female informant attempted to find a garage in the area of 7th and N Streets that housed the vehicle used in the robbery and murders. The garage and car were never located. In 1954, a male confidential informant came forward with new information. This same informant had also spoken about the murders in 1940. The male informant received information from a confidential female informant that the robbery and murders were planned in a beauty salon operated by Jonas Willard Green and that William Clark was at that meeting. Those are the facts about William Clark as they've been presented in the case file and within my objective investigation. With all of that information, I can add some additional circumstantial evidence that I found during my exhaustive research and make some logical conclusions. First, I'm going to establish the means, the motive, and the opportunity for William Clark to have committed the car barn robbery and murders. Motive is the reason behind the crime. Means is the ability to commit the crime, and opportunity is the chance to commit the crime. These three aspects are used to assist prosecutors and investigators with the narrowing down of suspects. Although they can be considered a trifecta of information and provide essential facts about a specific suspect, they're not in and of themselves conclusive regarding guilt. So for now, just consider this information regarding William Clark. Motive. It was a robbery, first and foremost, so the motive was money. William Clark was in serious debt, and he had a new girlfriend, Edith Small. He moved his clothes from the apartment of his other girlfriend, Mary Branch, two weeks prior to the murders. He went back to Mary's apartment on Saturday and stayed there until Monday afternoon when he turned himself in. William Clark attempted to kill Mary Branch when she threatened to tell what she knew to the police. He owed alimony to his wife, Viola, in addition to other debts owed to Frank Shurman, and Mary Branch stated that she was supporting him financially. I also believe that William Clark had a gambling debt to some very dangerous or very important people, namely Jonas Willard Green or one of his close affiliates. I suspect that Clark got an ultimatum at the beauty salon meeting and a final warning during their Sunday night meeting. Time's up. Pay me or else. Clark attempted to repossess a car from Frank Schuerman the week before the murders, ostensibly to repay his debt under fraudulent circumstances since the car was already in arrears from a previous loan. After the car barn robbery and murders, William Clark had the funds to purchase furniture and put a $500 deposit down on a house. William Clark had the motive to commit the crime. 
Next is Means. Clark knew the operation of the Chevy Chase Lake office inside and out since he worked there and saw it firsthand. He would have known about the vacant lots just to the north of the ticket office and the path through the snow past the miniature golf course to get to the front door, which had been left unlocked for him. Clark's car was at Shurman's in Baltimore, and he was unsuccessful at getting it back. The stolen green Buick was located within walking distance from his apartment on Gerard Street. Eyewitness Ernest Carter named the car he saw as a green Buick. Clark could have secreted the car in the garage at 7th and N Streets and called his buddy and taxi driver, John Swales, who lived just three blocks away, to take Clark and the others back to Gerard Street before the sun came up. Regarding the murder weapon, it was reported that a police officer gave Clark three or four different guns. That's unsubstantiated, but access to a firearm wouldn't have been an issue. The gun used in the car barn murders was described as older and in not very good shape which would point to a street purchase, something Clark would have been very familiar with since he was previously arrested for an armed robbery. Clark had the means to commit the crime. Finally, opportunity. William Clark's alibi was Mary Branch and James Weir, both of whom initially substantiated his story about attending the Gaiety Theater on Sunday night, but the murders didn't happen until early Monday morning. Mary Branch and William Clark slept separately by their own admission, so Mary couldn't alibi him. James Weir was home by 11.15 p.m., according to Mary Branch and Weir's friend Joseph Goddard. Imperatively, I recently found a newspaper ad for the Gaiety Theater that listed the showtimes. There was no evening show on Sunday nights. The matinee started at 5 o'clock. None of them went to the Gaiety Theater on Sunday night, there was no trip in a taxi to the Gaiety. Their entire alibi about going there on Sunday night was pure, unadulterated bullshit. The green Buick was stolen at around 10 o'clock p.m. on Sunday night when Clark was not at the theater. William Clark had no alibi whatsoever for the night of January 20th to the morning of January 21st. William Clark had the opportunity to commit this crime. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. 
Now that I've established the means, motive, and opportunity for William Clark, let me go a little further with the circumstantial evidence using my investigative experience peppered with a little common sense. William Clark worked at the Chevy Chase Lake office as a conductor for one month in the fall of 1934. He knew the layout of that office, the times that the Brinks truck would be scheduled for a pickup on Monday morning, the amounts available, how it was packaged in large canvas bags, that only one clerk would be inside of the office, ingress and egress routes from Connecticut Avenue, where to park the car, and that the final trolley of the night left the barn at 2.05 and the three-hour window before the next one was scheduled to depart at 5.30. Clark would have known that the night watchman would be across the street at the car barn readying the trolleys for that first morning run. Clark also had a friend working there that night whom I believe he enlisted to make sure that all of the doors were unlocked, Francis Gregory. Clark went to the office twice on Saturday for no authentic reason. It's my opinion that he was getting one last look at the schedule board to see who'd be working on Sunday night. One final walkthrough of the office to get reacquainted with the doors, the locks, exits and entrances, and he scoped it out to make sure his plan would work without a hitch. Another reason for going there on Saturday would be to make sure that any fingerprints left behind during the robbery could be explained away should the cops find them after the crime. Clark also wanted to show his face to as many people as possible to establish a preceding alibi. Just in case anyone named him outright as a suspect, he could just say, of course it wasn't me, I was there on Saturday, which was exactly what happened. On Sunday evening, Clark met with a police officer with blonde hair whose name sounded like Creek or Greek, Jonas Willard Green. I believe that Clark had a gambling debt and owed Green money. Clark was given an ultimatum, pay up or else, along with a deadline. During that meeting, Clark assured Green that the money was forthcoming. With the deadline for payment imminent, the failure to recover his car from Frank Schuerman to repay his deficit and no other car available that wouldn't be identified to anyone he knew, William Clark and his accomplices, Walter Oliver and Robert Janney, walked two blocks and stole the green Buick from 15th and Irving Streets. They then drove to the ticket office at 14th and East Capitol Street. Clark intended to rob two ticket offices that night, the one at 14th and East Capitol Street in addition to Chevy Chase Lake, but Clark was spotted by K.W. Gettings and had to abort that first robbery, at which point they drove to the area of Chevy Chase Lake. The car was observed by John Stout at 3.50 in the morning as it idled on the east side of Connecticut Avenue facing north a half mile south of the ticket office. After being seen by John Stout, they drove to the empty lots to the north of the Chevy Chase Lake office to park and wait out of sight. One of the suspects exited the car and left shoe prints in the snow along the B&O railroad tracks out to Connecticut Avenue during a quick reconnaissance of the ticket office to make sure that James Mitchell was working alone. The shoe prints led back to the waiting car at which point the car exited the lots and went south to wait in front of the office with the car facing southbound. According to plan, the front door of the ticket office was unlocked by Francis Gregory, just like the Brightwood ticket office attempted robbery several months before. William Clark and either Jenny or Oliver entered the office and demanded that James Mitchell unlock the cage door at gunpoint. Mitchell was taken by surprise and unlocked the cage door under duress. Because William Clark knew that James Mitchell previously aided the police in his arrest, Clark shot Mitchell three times in the head to eliminate him as a witness and kicked his body over to make sure he was dead. I don't believe that Walter Oliver or Robert Janney expected Clark to kill Mitchell, which set everyone into a panic. That would explain the shouting heard by both Ernest Carter and Charles Smallwood. Either Janney or Oliver grabbed the 22-pound money bags. Then he and Clark fled out of the office to the waiting Buick, which made a U-turn on Connecticut Avenue and went north toward the car barn where Emery Smith was resting in the workshop. Smith heard the shouting and gunshots and ran out of the barn to Connecticut Avenue. He was forced into the car at gunpoint when he tried to stop them and he recognized William Clark, who recognized him back. Smith was killed in the car with four shots to the head to eliminate him as a witness, and then he was dumped at the first convenient place, Rock Creek, 
to hide his body and cover up his murder. The car was covered with blood and the glass of a window was shattered. So William Clark, Walter Oliver, and Robert Chaney went north to Pliers Mill Road, then east to Georgia Avenue. They went south on Georgia Avenue, which turns into 7th Street Northwest. It was a straight shot to the garage at 7th and N Street, which was operated by Duffy, an employee of Jonas Willard Green. Once the car was secreted in this garage, Clark and the others got a ride, likely from his friend John Swales, whom I believe was Duffy, back to Gerard Street or some other location to divvy up the money, and then they went their respective ways. If the car was parked in a garage for years without being detected, it was hidden by someone with a lot of influence and muscle, Jonas Willard Green, to keep that under wraps and keep the people with any knowledge of its whereabouts quiet. Duffy disappeared in 1936. Mary Branch knew everything, and she threatened to go to the police when she heard that William Clark was seeing Edith Small. Clark tried to kill Mary by throwing her into a river, just like Emery Smith had been thrown into Rock Creek. Clark panicked when he found out that Mary survived and he kept her in his orbit with letters from prison. Clark juggled all three women in his life, Viola, Mary, and Edith, with manipulation, and he made himself into the victim. After William Clark repaid his debt to Jonas Willard Green with the spoils from the robbery and the investigation into the murders began, the district powers in charge learned of Clark's alliance with Green. Clark's investigation became hands-off. The detectives chased other suspects from out of town, notorious murderers like Tony the Stinger Cugino, who wouldn't be bothered with a small-town heist like the Chevy Chase Lake office. They went on wild goose chases. William Clark was in custody for three days. There was no follow-up regarding his alibi. No further questions about the fact that the Gaiety Theater had no Sunday night show, which is something that anyone who lived in D.C. would have known outright, especially the district detectives who questioned him. James Weir wasn't pursued at all, and his interview amounted to all of two sentences that said they didn't learn anything. As long as the investigation steered clear of William Clark and by association, Jonas Willard Green, the detectives were allowed to move forward. That also explains why the state of Maryland started a case against Walter Oliver and others, and not directly against William Clark, and why so many balls were dropped during Clark's part of the investigation. Because of Jonas Willard Green's tangential association to a double murder, murders that were not part of the original robbery plan, the case was swept under the rug and covered up due to Green's relationship with his cousin, D.C. Commission President Melvin Hazen. William Clark wasn't discreet and would have done anything to get out of prison or get a reduced sentence, including the dropping of Jonas Willard Green's name. Clark couldn't be trusted to keep a lid on it, so for the people in charge, it was better to leave the case buried under a mound of suspicion rather than give Clark up as the perpetrator and risk him running his mouth. While Clark was in prison for the attempted murder of Mary Branch, Clark alluded to a friend in one of his letters whom he said would float him the money for an attorney. In my opinion, his friend was Jonas Willard Green. I believe that Montgomery County detectives Volton, McAuliffe, and Rogers could have solved this case in 1936 but they were prevented from doing so by the powers in the District of Columbia. They had no jurisdiction over the district line from Montgomery County. That was why Colonel McAuliffe got so angry when Jack Toomey mentioned the Carborn case to him in 1985. McAuliffe knew it was a cover-up and he was powerless to do anything about it. Because the suspects all lived in DC, even though the crime happened just over the district line in Maryland, Volton and the others were reliant upon the assistance of district detectives who were in the know about Clark and Green's affiliation and the brakes were slammed on any further investigation. By 1954, when the new information came out, nearly 20 years had passed and nobody in the district, including Captain Richard McCarty, was going to open that can of worms and have to testify in court as to their incompetence or complicity in a cover-up. It was easier to just let sleeping dogs lie. Captain Volton never let the case go, and he couched his 1954 report in veiled terms, referring to Jonas Willard Green only as ex-Sergeant Green, rather than use his full name. I believe he did this purposefully, to keep anyone of importance who was still around and saw it from tossing his report into the trash can, 
It was a strategy that eventually worked. My friend, Stephanie White, cracked Green's identity, and I put all of the pieces together. That's my opening argument against my primary suspect, William Clark. He had the means, the motive, and the opportunity to commit this crime. His alibi has been obliterated. His lies have been exposed. His affiliation to people of influence has been found. His past criminal history showed his penchant for armed robbery, and his subsequent crimes showed his propensity for violence and a complete disregard for human life. I'll present more about William Clark next week, and I'll talk about Robert Janney, Walter Oliver, Francis Gregory, Jonas Willard Green, and Mary Branch in the next few episodes. Oh, and you might be wondering, what about James Weir, the guy who gave William Clark an alibi? Well, who do you think Captain Volton's confidential informant was? If you have information about the Carbarn murders, go to the Shattered Souls Facebook page and leave me a message. Shattered Souls, the Carbarn Murders is produced by Karen Smith and Angel Heart Productions. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.